Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I am back again. I'm Tobias, and I'm here with Yusip. Hey, Tobias. Uh, all good here. Uh, something I want to highlight. My life is complete now. I got a new Lego set. Uh-oh. So, so I've I've purchased all the Lego Technics things, the cars that they've produced in the past five or so years. They're amazing. So now Lego came out with the Lamborghini Sian, and on the day it came out, that was June first. They announced it's available now. You can buy it here. I went to Lego.com, clicked order paid for it, have had it shipped for me. It arrived yesterday. So it's 3,600 and some pieces. And it will probably take me about three months to complete because I only get to work on that perhaps once per week. But I am happy now. My life is complete. There's nothing else I will ever need in my life anymore. I will hold you accountable to that in the next show when you say that you've got some new gadget you know, for your home office or whatever. Uh, but I mean... Yeah, it sounds like you'll be busy building some some toys moving forward. I I think I will be busy, and the bonus is that once you order something like this, uh, it's it's a fairly sizable investment in the sense that it's it's not super cheap. So once you order this, Lego actually throws in like a small Lego Technic car package, the the one with fifty pieces or something. So I found that in the box as well, and my two year old. He's super happy now because he got the small one. All right. No, so then it's justifiable to get the expensive Lambo because you will also get Lego for the kids. Yes. Okay, gotcha. So how <laughs> how are you? So I'm good. I'm good. Um, I haven't been building any Lego, but um, I've done something different this time. And I actually refactored some of my web apps to .NET 5. And that is .NET 5 Preview 4 currently. And I managed to get them running in the Azure app services in the cloud. So I'm pretty happy with that. A lot of the dependencies that I use for those projects are also on preview for .NET 5. Because if I couldn't get them up and running on a preview NuGet for the dependencies I have, it it would fail uh, for various reasons, mostly because I was using things in .NET 5 that didn't exist in in the older .NET Core 3.1. So I'm happy with that. It's um, a bit more technical, a bit more... I don't usually spend a lot of my evenings coding and doing these things anymore, but now I, I just wanted to try this out. And I'm happy to say that it works. .NET 5 running successfully in an Azure app service. So that's pretty sweet. Okay, so I need to spend some time on .NET 5 preview as well. One of the projects that I have is the, is the application that sets my, my free busy light at the home office to red and turns it on whenever my microphone turns on. And I was fiddling with that, and it's a .NET Core application now, but some of the NuGet packages I use are .NET 4.6.1 something something. Right. Visual Studio always complains, so I just, I just hide those warnings, and it seems to work <laughs> <laughs> magically. So is there something I should note if I ever move to .NET 5 now? Well, the first thing is, uh, you know, being in the developer space for about 20 years, I would say if you get warnings about something like that, it might be a good idea to look at them. Uh, so that's first. But otherwise, moving to .NET 5, 
the, the idea behind .NET moving forward is now it's going to be .NET 5 and then .NET 6 and then so on. Uh, so there's not going to be .NET Core 3.1 and well, .5. And there's um, the differentiation we have today is .NET Core or .NET Core App and the .NET Standard. So you have .NET Standard, which is uh, like for the framework, and then you have .NET Core App, which is for the executables. And moving forward, you will only have .NET 5. So both of these types of frameworks will be now embedded in the vision that Microsoft has for one .NET. How that will affect your code in your busy life with uh, warnings, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so whenever I receive more warnings in the future, I'll just make sure to quickly hide them. I just well. just ignore them and move on, like you you know carry on. Nothing to see here. Yeah, actually get on <laughs> with the Lego and forget about warnings. Okay, so today's episode is about chaos engineering methodology. Uh, I think I know a bit about this, but what is chaos engineering? So um, I think this is a fun topic. It's a bit less technical and more uh, process and methodology. And chaos engineering is something that I try to adapt, perhaps not fully as some big companies do. Um, but according to Wikipedia, it's chaos engineering is the uh, discipline of experimenting on a software system in production in order to build confidence in the system's capability to withstand turbulent and un unexpected conditions. That was a long phrase. Um, so essentially, you want to achieve consistent reliability by harden uh, hardening the services against any type of failures that you can get. So you want to find ways to kind of simulate that failure to determine that you can withstand an outage of any kind within the application. This can be um, traffic, memory, user load, uh, different attack vectors, you name it. Um, and the idea is that you can do this in production. So you have a product production system running. Um, and the reason you want to do that with a production system is at scale, it can be very difficult to simulate a production workload. So in development, you might not know or be able even to reproduce all the variables and things that you have in production. So if your system is resilient enough, you can actually test these things in production as long as you kind of limit the blast radius. Um, so in, in production and at scale, you will get transient faults. They will happen. Uh, the cloud at scale also have limits. There's considerations and quotas that we need to take into design. Um, and chaos engineering kind of enable us to embrace the uncertainty, if you will, and strives to find rare and unpredictable and disruptive outcomes as early as possible, kind of shifting left uh, to minimize the customer impact. Meanwhile, you can run this um, on a production system to try and mitigate things uh, and make your application as resilient as possible. So my takeaway here is that I, I have a service in production. So instead of uh, logging to Azure portal and just deleting the whole resource group and say, this is chaos now. <laughs> it's, it's more about, let's see if what happens if this storage account is, is moved from cool to hot, things like this. It can be things like that. And, and since you mentioned storage, I remember from, and I think this is from 2015 or something like that, there is someone on the Azure search team who uh, discusses how they do with Azure Search. And they also apply chaos engineering. Um, and like kind of the, the chaos engineering principle is you should be proactive. Don't wait for a failure and then try to fix the bug. 
try to force failures early, right? The more things you can break up front, the less things you have to fix in the aftermath. Um, the other thing is embracing failure, right? Failures aren't bad. Quite the contrary. I think that if, if we get failures, this is how we can learn about the weaknesses so that we can gracefully handle them at scale. So if something happens in the application, I want to know about it. And I don't just want to you know, write a bug fix and apply that. I want to understand why did that happen? And we kind of, in this case with chaos engineering, we can kind of inject that and, and be proactive and force the system to break because the sooner we know about that, we can embrace it. So embracing the failure is a good thing because we can understand why it happened. We can fix it and have this kind of graceful uh, management of whatever went wrong. Another principle is it's kind of break the system, right? It's don't be afraid to break it. So consciously try to break things that will help your final outcome because you will likely find a lot more issues before you launch. And then after you launch, you will also find issues. I have not heard about any single service in the world that has been set to production on version one that never updated, right? So there's always things that's going to change. So this is sort of like um, if you have a country uh, with this uh, sort of benevolent dictator ruling the whole country, and that's perhaps where the saying comes from that don't shoot the messenger. So somebody bringing in the bad news, meaning we found a failure or we found a bug or we found an issue in our code so instead of shooting the messenger and blaming him or her on that, we actually try to identify and address these issues and then embracing the failures in the sense. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this is a, um, a good mindset in general. Uh, it does not only, of course, apply to chaos engineering as such as a methodology, but it applies to anything that if you find a system that is broken or if you find weaknesses in the system's reliability or whatever it is, you don't put blame on anyone because it's not helpful. Being in this industry for such a long time, I know if you find something that is bad and you tell the developers or the vendor or whoever built it that, you know, this sucks because it crashes and then, you know, don't share any constructive feedback, you know, that, that is not really helping. It's maybe helping toward finding a fix for that bug, but instead saying we found this and this is why we think this happened, here's how to reproduce it and can we please get this sorted? That's a lot better thing to, um, to do. So you can embrace failure if you're the, the customer, of course. But if you're the company or the developers building this, expect failures, embrace failures, learn from that. And this is kind of the methodology and the mindset I want to have because I don't build perfect code. I don't build perfect systems. Things will break because I made a mistake or because something changed in dependencies or whatever it is. Um, so this also helps us kind of establish a graceful mitigation. So as we learn about things that break, we can then more gracefully kind of handle them. So establishing this early again in the process is key to reducing unexpected failures down the road. So I really like that. So I'm sitting here now, I'm thinking that I don't write perfect code either. And I might need to look into those warnings after we're done with the <laughs> recording. Because this sort of chaos engineering, I really like the idea that we don't expect that once we deploy something to production, it's going to be perfect. And if something fails or when something fails, we'll, we'll work together as one team to embrace those failures, understanding them and proactively fixing them, but also getting the lessons and understanding that those will happen in the future as well. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the kind of embrace failure 
um, uh, mindset that it's okay to fail because it will happen. And it's not because someone is bad at what they do. Unexpected variables will come into play, whatever you do, especially if you build a scalable cloud system. Um, so I, I kind of like to embrace this as a practice and a process across different development teams. Um, so everyone can get that embedded into their culture. Um, and it cannot be enforced. So you cannot be in, enforcing this top down and say, as a manager, I think that you need to follow this um, you know, if, from operations point of view or something else. It has to be a collaboration. And for me, the ideal scenario is like a proper DevSecOps process where chaos engineering is adopted as an accepted methodology in that process. So it's not about replacing anything else. It's not about, you know, stop doing something and start doing this because this is just a methodology. This is not a technical implementation of something. This is a mindset. Um, and if you get parts of this mindset into your DevOps or DevSecOps process, that is helpful. And, you know, again, being in this industry for a long time, I will never ever say that as a coach of this practice or that practice, you have to abide by these 100 rules in order to fulfill the certificate of achievement of this whatever technology or methodology. If we can adopt a few of these things that will help us reach a better outcome, that's enough uh, because things will change. In 10 years, maybe nobody remembers what this is. Maybe nobody knows what DevSecOps is. I recall perhaps 10, maybe 12 years ago, I attended a, a certified Scrum Master training. It was two days. It was fairly nice and, and okay. And it was really about the methodology and the thinking on, on how do you craft your code? How do you lead your teams? And many times somebody in the audience would ask, so what's the tool we use for doing DevOps? What's the tool to do Agile? And then it really hits me that, that especially in IT, people always are looking for the perfect framework for the perfect tool. Just deploy this one tool and mm -hmm. it takes care of everything. Yeah. And it's also evident now when mostly all of us are working remotely and people start asking, what's the best tool to work remotely? Is it Teams? Is it Zoom? Is it Slack? And Whatever it gets the job done, that's it. Exactly. And you can use all, all of them if you like. And, and for this sort of approach with, with chaos engineering, it's also nice that it's not tied to a tool. It's more of a mindset and accepting that people do failing. Uh, people fail, people write buggy code. We find issues, we find failures, and then we need to have a mindset that let's get this fixed. Yeah, and also the proactive part is something that I really like that when we build things, we don't expect them to work. We build them and then we proactively try to make them break. And this is also a big part of it because oftentimes we see you're very agile, you build something, you push it out, awesome, but you never really test it thoroughly. Maybe you have some unit tests or integration tests, but are you injecting memory dumps? Are you injecting memory faults? Are you injecting CPU things that will do a CPU spike? Are you trying to act, attack, if it's a cloud-hosted environment, are you trying to attack it with a WASP top 10? Uh, attack vectors. Not everyone does that. If you don't do that, how do you know how it's going to handle that when it happens? And it doesn't have to be complicated because all of those things, there's tools, of course, for that. But if we don't have the mindset that we need to take care of it or need to proactively uh, kind of build in resilience in our applications, then we will get the problem at some point in production. And then we have to deal with everything that comes our way. 
So you mean to tell me that just doing Control Shift B in Visual Studio to build, ignoring the warnings, is it's not enough? Well, if it builds, ship it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right click, publish, and you, and and you you're oh, good yeah. and you can go to lunch. You know, friends don't let friends right click publish. So. I, I think I, I think I, I have that on a T-shirt. <laughs> I do admit I did that yesterday, uh, but it was a local app, so I didn't publish anything to the cloud. So I think I'm good. That's okay. And also, to be quite fair, you can do that to the cloud. I do that often. Why do I do that though? Because it's a demo, it's a test, it's a small dev environment. Anything else? Running through GitHub Actions or Azure DevOps pipelines. You you already mentioned that we apply chaos, uh, but when do we apply chaos? Is it is it like a constant mindset, a bit like with security nowadays, or is this something that we inject neatly as part of the project? That okay, phase two, uh, gate three, we will do chaos for two hours. <laughs> yeah, so that would be awesome to have a slot in my calendar to say apply chaos uh, for three hours. Um, <laughs> So it's a great question, though. When do we apply chaos engineering or chaos um, all the time? Right? The, the only true answer is as often as you can, but pretty much all the time. So the reason for that is, you know, with constant change, we need to stay on our toes all the time because things will change, especially, again, if you build for the cloud, it will change. Things will change. Dependencies that you rely on or services will change. Their SLAs may, might change. They might change service endpoints, they might change availability vectors or you know, a, a bunch of di different things that you possibly could not take into consideration today when you build it, that might change tomorrow when whoever you depend on is changing their service or making additions to it. Um, and we, of course, need to monitor that change. So uh, monitor stuff and, and the change that we do is the only way we can stay on top of things. And for me, continuously stressing the components and systems that we build helped expose issues early. So again, this comes back to kind of, did you test your system? Are you proactive in trying to make your system crash? And a lot of people, the answer is no, of course not, because I don't want it to crash. And that's a valid answer in the sense that you don't want it to crash, but it's an invalid answer to me if you say that you want to build a resilient application. So continuously hammer it, continu continuously stress it uh, to ensure that the components uh, can handle all, all the loads. And components can be deployed containers if you're using container workloads or functions or Azure app services or Windows applications, whatever you build, you know, stress the components. And coming back to what I mentioned, it can be injecting memory faults, injecting CPU uh, throttle spikes or, um, you know, whatever. And then if you listen to this and say, whoa, he's saying injecting memory uh, problems, you know, how would you do that? And we'll get to that a bit later. There's, of course, tools for that. So the methodology is about embracing failure and being proactive in trying to break the system. But there's tools to support that methodology, of course, because otherwise we would have to keep a lot of things in our head to, to get that done. Um, so, you know, um, apply chaos when you add new dependencies, when your application usage pattern uh, are changing. If you see and measure how users are using your apps or web apps or mobile apps, or whatever it is, and that pattern starts to change, you need to adapt and adopt those changes and then apply similar patterns of injecting issues uh, because then you can discover them before it's too late. Um, and you can compare it like with exploratory penetration testing with the OWASP top 10 attack proxies. 
So that's random attacks against your system to learn about weaknesses and outcomes. And with chaos engineering, we can do this, but just not for security issues, like for everything. Uh, so I really like that. It's, a, it's like an um, embracing failure, but also trying to fail often and continuously will help you with a better outcome when you run your stuff in production. Okay. There's a, there's a series on Netflix. And, and for anybody in the audience located in the US, this is probably a series you've seen five years ago, but it just landed in the Nordics now. And it's called The Pine Gap, I think. And I'm not really sure what it's all about because I, I missed like the first four episodes and I, I started watching it at, at the fifth episode. And they do monitoring. So there, there's a team monitoring something, I think, network traffic. And they often show on the show that uh, you, you have this constant line of chattering or, or radio frequencies. And then when there's a spike, something starts to happen in the episode. And then they all react around it. And it's a single spike on a single source. So this really talks to me back then that both monitoring and, and also staying on your toes constantly is something that it might be hard to find the time and resources for this because it, it feels often that teams of developers building new things are always paying back the depth on, on whatever they haven't really gotten to do yet. And now we tell them that, yeah, start doing chaos things, start causing more havoc as opposed to fixing all the legacy issues. Yeah. And it's a, like it's a team collaboration effort. So it's not about um, you know, devs having all the responsibility for this because you might have QA, you might have an operations team, you might have your actual users using the production system can also be a good um, use case for A-B testing. Um, so, you know, again, getting it back into the dev DevOps or DevSecOps process is good for the reason that something that we usually say with DevOps, like a true DevOps process, you operate what you build, right? So the devs, legacy IT teams, you had a developer, they pushed some code into the repository, and then they never saw the, the light of day, right? And then the operations team took it, packaged it, put it into production. With a true DevOps process, we're a little bit more agile, and the, uh, the borders are kind of floating a little bit more. So as a developer, you also can get the app insights, you can get the telemetry and metrics of your application in production to understand what is happening. Um, but of course, it all depends on what kind of project you're working on, what kind of company it is, and the size of the company and the size of the team. So this is not a one thing to rule them all. This is just something to keep in mind that it might be helpful if you're continuously working on products or services that you need to over the years or over time kind of improve all the time. I imagine that this also depends heavily on the sort of organization you work in. Uh, about the tools then, um, do we have any tools we could recommend? Or is this more of something that the teams typically build their own custom scripts and, and sort of document their own approaches that this is a sort of chaotic thing that we're planning on doing next? Yes and yes. Uh, there are tools available and a lot of people also write their own kind of tools to, uh, which is more like tests, perhaps, to, uh, to stress test the system. Um, one tool that is popular uh, that I see mentioning a lot when it comes to chaos engineering, and I, I actually believe that Netflix coined chaos engineering back in the day, um, I believe, and, and you know, hold me accountable to the truth here if you, 
if you know anything different, if you're listening in, uh, you know, reach out. But I think Netflix did that. They have a tool called Chaos Monkey. And that's a resiliency tool to help applications tolerate random instance failures. And I think on their website, they say something like, Chaos Monkey randomly terminates virtual machine instances and containers that run inside of your production environment. Exposing engineers to failures more frequently uh, incentivizes them to build resilient services. So kind of what you mentioned before, if something happens in your production storage account, like you said, if, if it's removed or something is changed, Netflix has this tool, Chaos Monkey, and maybe you have 25 containers supporting a, a microservice architecture, and these 25 containers are doing something, this tool will go in and kill it in production. I will kill this container right now, bam. And then if everything starts failing or you get intermittent failures because of that, then you know why. And you can start mitigating that. So you have a graceful failure and then you can handle it. So it's actually not a failure. And then build in self-healing and everything that you need. Um, so I really like that. There are tools available for that. And I'm sure there's you know, a plethora of different tools. Um, and I also mentioned one, one other thing, which is the OWASP. If you're doing security penetration testing, the OWASP um, also comes with some automation. If you're on Azure DevOps, you can use an extension called OWASP SAP Proxy, I believe it is. And that will run the top 10 OWASP threats uh, targeting your website or service. So you can also use those kind of tools to kind of apply the principles of chaos engineering as such, because you will stress test the system, you will hammer it, you will try to find weaknesses, try to do SQL injections, and you know whatever is listed as a threat in the OWASP top 10 that's going to be tried with that system. So there's different tools to do this. And of course, we'll put a link to uh, both the Chaos Monkey and the OS Top 10 SAP proxy. And if there's any other tools that I can find in, in my research, I will put that into the show notes as well, of course. Sounds good. Uh, do you know if Chaos Monkey is free or even open source? It's on GitHub. So I, I think it's on github.com slash Netflix slash chaos hyphen monkey. Um, if that is not the case, it will still be in the show notes. So you can click it. All righty. So I will definitely go and try this out against my Philips Hue FreeBSI application <laughs> thing that produces lots of warnings now, but it works. So let me try to bend Chaos Monkey to my will and cause havoc at home as well. All right, cool. All righty. I think that's, that's all we have on chaos engineering. Super interesting topic. And I recall reading about chaos monkey years ago but i kind of dismissed that at the time that yeah this is something for large organizations like netflix producing these globally available services that are critical but now i'm understanding more that i can also apply this to smaller projects smaller uh services also instead of just going with the huge enterprises yeah and i i think the key takeaway for me has been you know, if you have a DevOps or DevSecOps process that works or that is in the works, because truly a, a good process is ever-changing in the way that you will embrace how things work and fix the things in the process that doesn't work, embracing that helps me to pick the, it like kind of cherry-pick the best part out of chaos engineering. So I'm not going to lie and say that I apply chaos engineering perfectly according to the whatever principles there are. No, it's, it's a nice methodology. I like uh, the idea behind of it. And I'm picking out the things that I can make use of in my daily life of operating and building software. Um, so, so that's for me the main takeaway. And that's how I hope people can see it 
uh, reading up a bit on chaos engineering because the idea is awesome, but the implementation can differ depending on the process you already have. Sounds good. So thank you for tuning in and until next time. All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.